Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 111 for June the 17th, 2013. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest, as always, is Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. Did you know that 111 in the game of cricket has a superstitious meaning? It's called a Nelson, and apparently bad things will happen when a team reaches that score. It has nothing to do with the sporting aspects of the game at all, much like the idea that if you don't have a semicolon in your password, it's bound to be weak. You know, it's kind of interesting that you talk about superstitions like that, because there's a lot of folks that carry a bit of baggage around with them about how the government is monitoring their every movement and they need to wear their tinfoil hats when they go outside so that people can't read their thoughts. And it turns out that there was a, uh, a large leak of information this week uh, about a, an NSA spying program that has been going by the moniker of PRISM. What's interesting about this, uh, aside from how you feel about whether the information should be leaked or not, uh, sort of similar to Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and other topics we've talked about in the past, what's interesting to me is the data perspective of it, right? This information was sensitive to say the least, considering the reaction the American government's had to its being leaked. And data leakage is a topic we talk about frequently in the podcast. How on earth do state secrets just walk out the door? Yes, it does seem that the the surveillance angle understandably has caught everybody's attention. And gosh, are they spying on US citizens? Oh no, good, it's only foreigners. <laughs> but yes, I share your thoughts that actually what worries me a lot more is that an organization that has the right to do this and is supposedly good at surveillance and collecting data and keeping secrets has had such egregious leaks. Did nobody notice that he was putting this stuff on a laptop that he would then remove from the premises? It does seem that if the NSA can make a blunder like that, should we be trusting everybody else who's collecting data? My first thought was, gosh, don't tell me that even the NSA couldn't get a PCI DSS certificate. Yeah, I, I was going back through some of this. Uh, there were some allegations that he had used a USB stick to exfiltrate some of the data. He also, I guess, had three laptops or something he took from uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, the contractor he was working with um, uh, for, for the NSA. I think the Register had a story saying, Revealed! The high-tech gizmo used by Snowden in the prism leak. And I thought, gosh, I wonder how he did it. USB key, apparently. And uh, I would have thought it that in an, in an organization like that, collecting data of that sort, that you would be at least a bit more cautious than we found people had been a couple of years ago when we bought those keys from uh, State Rail in Sydney and found that nobody had encrypted anything on them. That's just commuters on, the, on a metro rail system. Whilst you wish people were a bit more careful with their data, you can sort of understand why they might get slack about hey, some pictures of my most recent vacation. But the PRISM data, Bradley Manning situation, really how those weren't headed off at the pass in advance by some kind of data control does seem to beg a belief. Well, I suppose if you turn it around, it, it does, uh, it's a good opportunity to reassess what you're doing with your data as well. And that, you know, I was on Bloomberg Television this week talking about this story and one of the points I made was simply, if you're worried about the government spying on your emails or your online communications, whether you're a business or an individual, shouldn't you, you know, encrypt that information? It's not really that hard. And more important than that, 
is it's far more likely that Russian cyber criminals or the Chinese red menace or somebody else is after your data and likely wanting to do more harm to you with that data than the NSA is going to. And if you simply protect that information for any of those reasons, whether you're afraid of the Russians, the Chinese, or the American spies, any one of those reasons is enough to protect the data, and any one of them will protect you against all three of those uh, alleged adversaries, right? So we need to get back to the basics, identify what's important to us, identify what's sensitive, and make sure we treat it with the care and love that it deserves instead of just leaving it laying around for anybody to pick up and put on a thumb drive. I'm always amazed when I talk to people about full disk encryption, about the amount of effort and time they seem to put in to explaining why they don't want to do it. And the reasons for not using it boil down to, oh, it'll ruin performance. Well, when I first encrypted my Mac, I actually used a stopwatch before and after to see if I could measure a difference. And I'm sorry, I couldn't measure a statistically significant difference before or after having full disk encryption installed. And people say, oh, well, I might, I, might, I might forget the password. Well, don't forget the password then. I mean, do you regularly lose your car keys? Probably not. Do you regularly forget your wife's phone number? Probably not. You know, these are all things that we can do if we put our mind to it, even in the smallest amount. So I think that a lot of the reasons are just there because they're convenient excuses, as it were. And it really isn't that difficult. Exactly. And I mean, there's two ways that you're going to not have a device anymore. You're either going to decommission it or somebody's going to steal it. In both cases, full disk encryption has your back. Uh, so in addition to simply worrying about government privacy stuff, there is a lot of corporate gathering of large quantities of data that may or may not be useful at some random time of the future that we haven't imagined yet. And the, the, there's a town in Sweden named Salem, which... Uh, to my knowledge, has not had any witch trials, but, but is having a little bit of a dispute with Google over privacy policies. The story's more interesting than that, Chester. There's a, the town, municipality of Salem, wants to use Google Apps. They think they've struck a sweet deal with Google. The Swedish Privacy Commissioner has come along and said, you know what, last time we talked about this, we said to you guys that we were happy except for some issues relating to the contractual rights that Google claim over the data. So Google says, for example, we'll use your customer's data to help us improve the service. So, you know, the guys in the council said, that seems fair enough. You know, it'll help everybody. We're community spirited. It'll all be brilliant. They're not actually using the data to find out who bought which house or, you know, who's on the electoral roll or who isn't. And the Privacy Commission in Sweden praise the Lord for them, if you ask me, said, actually, no, that's not good enough. You know, th these aren't customers who can go and pick another place to shop. Short of moving out of the jurisdiction, uh, they're pretty much stuck with your decision. And we don't like the idea that there is this provision whereby the cloud provider can use the data that you're collecting on behalf of your citizens for some only loosely disclosed purpose. And I believe they also raised some concerns about, well, while you're using the data to improve the service, who's looking at it? Does that mean do, do subcontractors get to look at it? So people are maybe not even employed by Google? And does that right continue even if we, even if we fall out and the contract ends? So I thought that was a perfectly reasonable sort of thing to push back against. Well, do you think that this is going to be a bigger and bigger problem as time goes on? Because, you know, I, I personally feel like this a lot and that I, I run into 
lots of companies and information out there saying, in order to do this, you're going to have to like us on Facebook or to get support for this product that you purchased, you need to go to our Facebook page and post there, you know, to request assistance with, a pro you know, product X. I share those same concerns as you have, you know, if you, if you go, oh, well, we don't want to bother having a username and password system for our website. So yeah, as you say, we'll just leverage Facebook. So we'll, we'll use a Twitter login or we'll use this, that or the other. It does seem that we're kind of knitting things together in uh, a potentially very dangerous way. I nearly said in a prismatic way. <laughs> it does seem as though by doing that, you're building one really giant house of cards rather than several smaller ones. Who knows, maybe it will all come tumbling down together. So I don't like that idea at all, and I, that's why I said I take my hat off to the Swedish data protection people for saying, hey, no, you guys need to go back to Google and say, no, we don't want that clause in the contract. We've told you that before. Please, just strike it out. How hard can it be? Right. And, you know, this is, a, this is one of the benefits of a global society to a degree is that sometimes a given regulator in one area that's aggressive about protecting consumers can ultimately have an impact over potentially everybody in the world when they can maybe get some of the boilerplate language change, not just for themselves, but perhaps for everyone. I mean, we've seen in the United States in the case of data uh, breach notification laws, the fact that Massachusetts and California both passed reasonably stringent data breach notification acts means that almost every American company in all 50 states complies with those rules and applies it uniformly to all Americans as opposed to just those that reside in California and Massachusetts. So there, there can be some benefits to the, the more hawkish regulators out there um, helping all of us out even when maybe our own privacy regulators in our country aren't, aren't as aggressive as, as some others. So I, I think that's a great thing as well, Paul. That doesn't always work, Chester. I think it's a decade ago now that Australia passed its strict anti-spam regulations. Well, strict in as much as uh, it's entirely opt-in. You can spam me if I tell you I would like to be spammed by you and not otherwise. And all around the world, people went, wow, this is an absolute gem of a spam law. It's, it could be considered model legislation. We should all adopt it. But of course, the US is still stuck with can spam. And boy, can you spam. We're likely to see the opposite happen in the end if, if the U.S. were to actually pass national data breach um, laws. And, and that's exactly what happened, that how we ended up with can spam, which is independent states had much stricter anti-spam laws. And the marketers that lobby Congress uh, were able to get a national law passed, which superseded the states and undid all the strict ones and brought, uh, brought into force one without teeth. And so many of us are actually pleased that there's no National Data Breach Notification Act yet in the U.S. because the assumption is it will get watered down. It would actually remove the protections that are currently in place in Massachusetts and California and, and implement something far less effective uh, in the end. But we'll leave that for another podcast. Data breach notification is a fantastic topic that both of you and I are quite passionate about. Um, I was writing a story for Naked Security this week about the new BlackBerry operating system. I think they're just calling it BlackBerry 10, which is the one that operates on their new um, Q10 and Z10 phones, as well as the Playbook, which came out a couple of years ago. It's based on an operating system called QNX. And one of the oddities I found in writing it up, first and foremost, was that they include Flash Player. Is this a good idea? I'm not convinced that it is. I, can, I suppose I can see the point for those sites that you want to run on your 
ever more powerful smartphones that you want to run as if they were the full site, not the mobile site. You want them to behave exactly as they do on your desktop. On your desktop, you've got Flash because you've had it for the last 425 years. So yeah, let's have it on a mobile phone. But maybe they could have put it in the BlackBerry store or something and said, if you really must have it, then go and fetch it. Like Apple does these days with Java, for example. It's not part of the operating system anymore. And the other thing, in my understanding from reading your article, is not only did they include Flash, they're also updating it about five months behind Adobe. So you sort of get the worst of both worlds. You get something that, strictly speaking, you didn't need, and then it's kind of old and out of date anyway. Sounds like a bit of a lose-lose proposition to me. My reaction was websites that want to deliver their content to mobile phones must uh, already exclude Flash, right? I mean, they're already adopting either HTML5 or just changing the way their sites are designed so that they'll work on iPhones and Androids. And that's nearly every website out there these days. So it seems a bit superfluous. And, and, and you know, it being out of date is even worse. It was pointed out by a Naked Security reader that um, Flash is disabled by default. So they're shipping it, but it's off in the browser unless you go turn it on, but it's on the device. So that it's a little closer to what you were saying about maybe not shipping it at all, but it's, it's a bit bizarre. You know, it's, it's, it's not a disaster, I guess. We haven't heard of BlackBerry devices being owned through Flash vulnerabilities, but uh, perhaps since BlackBerry does put an emphasis on being a security-oriented mobile platform, especially with their new personas and the, you know, this idea of like virtual machines on your phone and stuff, maybe they would shore up that reputation a little better if they didn't ship vulnerable Flash by default. When you're, when you're building an application or an application suite, there is still that tendency, I think, to bundle in all the bits you need and the kitchen sink um, just so that it's going to be really, really fancy. But actually, removing code um, can be a very cathartic experience and can greatly improve security if there are things you don't need. Java is a good example. Um, then why have it there? It doesn't matter whether ja- really whether Java is secure or insecure. If you don't need it and you're not using it in your browser, don't have it. If you're just installing things in case you might want to use them someday, then crooks are going to feel exactly the same way and they're going to go looking for it because they might be able to use it one day. Minimizing your attack surface area may sound like a bit of a cliche, but uh, it's certainly worth doing. Yeah, so often less is more. And uh, on that note, I'll conclude this chat chat number 111. As always, for the latest security stories, visit us at nakedsecurity.sophos.com. If you like our podcasts, you can get all of them at podcasts.sophos.com. You can get them via RSS or on iTunes. If you're an iTunes user, please uh, give us a review, leave us a note, let us know how you like the podcast. And until next time, stay secure.